Well, it's a dense passage. We did, you, did you follow all the way to the end? Uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort of take it in, uh, in uh, bite-sized chunks. But uh, let's just pray as we uh, look at this part, part of God's Word. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning we would experience afresh the, the depth of your grace to us, the gift that Jesus Christ is to each one of us and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does Christian faith have to offer the world? In preparing this uh, current series from Romans chapters 5 to 8, because we did 1 to 4 before Easter, uh, we're sort of going to work our way through the letter bit by bit. Uh, One verse jumped out at me, and it's chapter 6, verse 4. It's not on your sheets, um, but it's it's this, this little phrase that says, we too may live a new life. And that's followed up in chapter 7, verse 6, where we get this call to serve in the new way of the Spirit. So Christianity offers the world a new way of life, a new way of human being. It's popular today, um, or people say today, oh, Christianity, that's old news. We've progressed to new, better ways of doing life. These new ways may look new, but actually they involve the return to old, pre-Christian ways of thinking. And what Christianity offers us today is still a completely new way of life compared to the old ways that the world has to offer, however attractively they have been repackaged for today. And in chapters 5 to 8, Paul unpacks this new life for us. We're going to see over the next few weeks how this new life involves receiving a new gift, embracing a new life, serving in a new way, enjoying a new freedom, experiencing a new power, expecting a new creation, and resting securely in a new destiny. And I hope if you've been a Christian for some time that you will have already tasted some of these things. And if you're not yet a Christian, well, you can see what you're missing out on, because there's this new life on offer. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about how being a follower of Jesus Christ involves receiving this new gift from God. And uh, if you've got uh, the middle of your sheets open, you'll see the the, the passage there. In the paragraph verses 15 to 17, we get this word gift mentioned over and over again. So in verse 15, you might have to underline, it's always helpful to bring a pen to church, so uh, you could underline verse 15, the gift is mentioned, and then in verse 16, it's called the gift of God, and in verse 16, this gift is the gift of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I, we all love to receive gifts. Well, here is a gift from God to you, wrapped up in his son, Jesus. Why does God want to give us a gift? Because but it's simply he loves us. Paul tells us, if you look at verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you may say that you love someone, but until you show that love, then they're just words. But God hasn't left us in the dark. He has shown his love by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the moral debt that stands to our name and the account books of heaven so we can be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. 
how can, but it raises the question, how can what Jesus did on the cross, just one man's work, really deal with the sins of the world? How can one man change the eternal destiny of millions and billions of people living today? And today is uh, Trinity Sunday, and when we remember that, that God, there's one God, who's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God we know in these three ways. And one answer to the question, how was Jesus able to bear the sins of the world, is because of his identity, that he is God's Son, because of who it was who was dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But another answer comes in this chapter, in, in chapter 5 of Romans, to do with uh, another aspect of uh, what Jesus did. It's a dense passage uh, with lots going on. Don't worry if we didn't all sink in on the first reading. But at its heart is a simple invitation to take on board the true and full extent of the gift that God has given us. Such is the value of this gift from God that it is today as new and fresh as ever. It is a new gift. So to help his readers understand this, Paul compares and contrasts God's gift to us in Jesus with what came before. How there is in our ancient history another figure whose actions shape the fate of us all. The one for whom we get our DNA, the first human being, Adam. Adam too has blessed humanity with a gift, a legacy. Although it's more like a curse, in fact. The word Paul uses here to describe what Adam did is trespass. It's a word like the word gift that gets repeated again and again in this chapter. To trespass is, you see the signs, you go on a walk, do not trespass. It's, there's a sign that warns you, but nonetheless you trespass by jumping over the fence, entering onto somebody's private land, and doing what you've been told not to do. And of course, that's exactly what Adam did. So before we look at the nature of God's gift, let's look at Adam's trespass. And once we've grasped what Adam did, we'll begin to be in a place where we can fully appreciate the value and the depth of God's gift to us in Jesus. And the fact that it's new compared to the old comes through. So firstly, our first point is Adam's great trespass. In verse 17, we read, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. And I think the best way to ex help explain all of this is to use a table. So turn to the back of your service sheets and you'll see a little table. So let's just uh, go through this table together. In his life, Adam is the first human being with Eve. He represents the, the human race. So he's a representative, a head, if you like, of the human race. And when we look at his record, we see that Adam made one big decision that's had an ongoing impact on all future human beings. And we've heard it described as this trespass. How did he do that? Well, we know the story from Genesis chapter 3. Adam was told by God not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam disobeyed that command. He ignored the warning, warning that it would lead to his death, and he ate the fruit. It was the first sin by a human being, and the result of which is that Adam and Eve were condemned. By removing their maker from his 
rightful first place in their hearts by placing their own desires and wants in their hearts uh, in place of that to sort of dethrone God and put themselves on the throne. It breaks their relationship with God and they can no longer enjoy his blessing and protection and so they are expelled from the Garden of Eden, from the access to the Tree of Life and they slowly begin to grow old and die. And what they do is to enter into a new realm, to come under the reign of death. And the reach or impact of this uh, impacted their children uh, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and so on right down to us, who is on this current day still live under this reign of death. And each newborn child receives this inheritance. They are born with a shadow of death hanging over them. So that's what Paul is saying in this chapter. And spiritually speaking, he says, the fact that we experience death is all down to Adam, to this one man's act of disobedience, to his one act of trespass. Verse 12, if you look back at the inside sheet, just as sin entered the world through one man, And death through sin, in this way, death came to all people. So a good example of how one person can have an impact on the whole world is actually a very current one. It's Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. His decision to invade Ukraine has had an impact not just on the lives of every Ukrainian, but also every Russian affected by sanctions. But but also all of us in the world, from the food that won't now go to countries in Africa that need it, to the spiraling cost of petrol here in the UK. We've all been affected by one man's actions. And Putin's actions has led to the death of thousands of people, and who knows where it will end. And one implication of this spiritual diagnosis we get here of the human condition is that we need to think again about death. We're so used to living under its rule aware that no one ever escapes its clutches, that we think it's normal. Whereas it is, according to the Bible, actually not how we could have lived. We could have lived in a perfect union with our creator, eating freely from the tree of life, protected from death, untouched by decay and disease. We were, in other words, made for something better. And sometimes in our hearts, we get a a yearning for that better life, rather than simply accepting death as as the way things are naturally. And when we do experience disease and growing old and death itself, it is a sign that something has gone badly wrong. That's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. Whether we like it or not, there's no choice about it. We are all caught up in what Adam did, and we live with the consequences of his fall. Adam's It's in the air we breathe. Adamson shapes us. So each of us of our own free will, trespass like Adam trespass, disobey like he disobeyed, and say to God quite sort of freely, we want to make our own decisions. We'll decide what's right and wrong. And so Paul is right when he says that thanks to Adam, all of us have been caught up in this sin. Now, there are three ways that we can respond to all of this. The first response people can make is, well, who cares? (laughs) So we will all die. 
Let's eat, drink, and be merry until our time comes. We're already in the soup. Let's all sin uh, as much as we want to, live exactly as we want, settle for death and an eternity apart from God in hell. That's the way of irreligion, the prodigal son of Jesus' parable. The second response is to try and sort out this problem by ourselves, by our own good deeds to try and earn our way out of the problem. Perhaps our good deeds can outweigh our sins. That's the way of religion of the prodigal son's older brother. And while the first response, well, just doesn't care about the problem, the second response, well, it doesn't work. All religion does, says Paul, is increase sin. That is, make you more aware of it. That's what he means in verse 20 when he says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So you'd be more aware of what sin actually is. Well, that's the bad news. Neither religion nor irreligion, neither morality or immorality can set you free from the reign of death. And so we need a third response. To cry out to God himself, help me, help us. And that's exactly what God has done in and through his son, Jesus. That is his gift to us. So let's turn now from Adam's great trespass to God's even greater gift. Have a look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. So let's come back to our table on the back page. In place of Adam as our representative, we now have Jesus. And on his record is what Paul calls his one righteous act. That is, a life lived in complete obedience to God, up to and including the laying down of his life upon the cross. That's what was needed to reverse Adam's trespass. What just one human being to live a perfect, sinless life. And no one until Jesus, and no one since Jesus, has lived such a life. And the result is that God accepts Jesus' life offered as payment in full of humanity's moral debt. To justify and put right that which has gone wrong. To restore the creator's broken relationship with his creation. And so powerful is Jesus' sacrifice that Paul can write, if you look at verse 9, in the past tense, since we have now been justified. Being justified before God is something the Christians of his day and of our day can enjoy here and now on earth. Jesus ends the stranglehold that death has over us, and through his resurrection brings us into a new realm, into the realm of life, not death, where life and resurrection has the final say. So have a look at verse 18. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so the one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. This cross that Jesus went to, can change the destiny of every single human being. And again in verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
This is God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. This is God's third way, not religion or irreligion, but grace received through faith. I wonder if you've ever received for a birthday or a Christmas present, or perhaps just out of the blue, a, a small wrap box. And you think, well, I wonder what this is. And from the side of the box, you think, well, maybe it might be a necklace or a watch. You, you tear off the wrapping paper eagerly, and you open the box to, inside, to find inside just a plain-looking key. Interesting, you think. And you think, well, maybe this is a key to a new bike or to a, perhaps a new car for your 21st birthday. Never happened to me. If it happened to you, lucky you. But actually, this key is to a house. Wow, full of excitement. You're taken blindfolded to the front door and the blindfold comes off. You take out the key and it opens the door to this house. You walk into the hall and discover that it is a mansion. There is room after room to explore. Acre after acre you can see in the garden to get lost in. It's all yours to enjoy, you're told. There is no rent to pay, no deposit to put down. The cost has been borne by another. The owner simply wants to share their vast home with you. Not even death, they say, will stop you being able to enjoy it. It is yours, you're told, to enjoy forever. And you're taken up to one of the bedrooms. This is going to be your vast bedroom. And there in the wardrobe is a whole new set of expensive clothes, which compared to the clothes you're wearing, well, they now look like rags. And then you're brought downstairs. And there in the hall, there is a party to welcome you of others who've been given the key. And say, look, there's, there's so much to tell you about to enjoy this new life that we're enjoying. It's the happiest moment of your life. Well, that is a little, I think, of what it's like to receive this gift from God. It's the greatest gift you could ever be given. Why would you not take hold of it? Well, although Paul compares Jesus with Adam, in the end, he says, although they both have an impact on countless other people, in the end, there is no comparison. If you look at verse 17, by the precipice, trespass of the one man. Death reigned, says Paul, through that one man, Adam. But how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So in order to enjoy the abundant provision of grace, which far outweighs uh, the impact of Adam's sin, to enjoy it to the full, to receive this gift. You've got to do one thing, which is to receive it, to actually take hold of it and make it your own. The, so imagine the family uh, gathers round on Christmas Day and uh, the father uh, picks up their present for their child and reaches out with their hands with the present. And what does the child do? Well, eagerly, with a smile on the face, reaches out their hands to receive it. That's what this word receives means here in this passage, to take hold of that which is being offered to you. And so the child unwraps it and opens it and then starts to explore it. I have to say, I think looking back, the best present I think I, we gave uh, one of our children was uh, to our son Joshua, a, a, a box of Lego on Christmas Day, something, a Star Wars Lego. The rest of the day was spent in utter silence with Joshua. <laughs> Absorbed. It was a great 
was worth the value of not cheap Lego, it was worth its weight in gold. But we thank then, the child thanks the Lord for their kindness. It was just what they wanted. It was more than they'd hoped for. And this morning we've got communion to share together. And it's an opportunity to reach out our hands afresh and receive this gift to us of bread and wine. And in doing so, to physically receive afresh this gift from God, to say thank you to Jesus for what it cost you personally so that we might enjoy this gift of righteousness, this gift of everlasting life, what it cost you to break the power that death holds over us since the beginning of the human race and spoils our lives so much to actually say, actually, there's a new life, that I can live under the reign of life, not death, that things can begin to change in my life, that we can begin to, in the words of Paul here, to explore the abundant provision of God's grace to us in the challenges of everyday life, to live not like the prodigal son or the elder brother in Jesus' parable, not a life of religion or irreligion, but to live a life of grace, receiving from God all that he wants to give us and that it changes from the inside out. Because here is a gift that we can all enjoy, but we must receive it, must make it our own. Not perhaps just once, but each morning I think it's good to say, well, Lord, here we are again, another day to explore this gift that I've received from you. It is a gift that is new and fresh every morning. It never grows old. It never fades. It never tarnishes. It is new every day. Well, let's just bow our heads to pray. Perhaps uh, perhaps for some of us, you know, the, the, being a Christian or Christian has, has it's become a bit old news to us. And we need to come back and see just how fresh it is and how life-changing this gift is. And let's receive more of the life of Jesus into our own lives, which will one day raise us from the dead. In Jesus' name.